On this edition of the Iowa Business Report. Uh, the number of individuals that lost their jobs in Iowa, and that's particularly the case in uh, a leisure and hospitality industry where the losses were very significant. We know that the economy has suffered as a result of the pandemic shutdown, but by how much? And how will that impact policymaking in the future? USMCA went into effect last month. An assessment by some of the key players is coming up soon. And you'll learn about a Quad Cities area business that is local, slow, and pure. This is the Iowa Business Report for the last weekend of August 2020. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at iowaabi.org. Here is Jeff Stein. We all started this year with optimism for business in Iowa and the U.S. Then came a global pandemic with an uncertain outcome even today. We welcome back two return guests to the program this week. Walt Rogers is Deputy Director of TEF Iowa. Dr. Ernie Goss is a Creighton University economist and the leading expert on the Midwest economy. They teamed up on a project to determine the actual dollar impact of COVID-19 on Iowa and what that means for our future. First, Walt Rogers. TEF Iowa uh, stands for Tax Education Foundation. Our goal is to really help every Iowan achieve the American dream and um, a lot of people have a different idea of what that means, but uh, we are here to help come up with good policy that helps Iowans. And so we were pretty interested about how COVID-19 was affecting our economy. And um, me being a former legislator, I know that legislators are concerned mostly about how they're going to do budgets next year. You know, I've talked to a lot of them and um, a lot of them have asked me, hey, Walt, can you find out some things about what our budget's going to look like? And so our organization turned to Dr. Goss and, and his uh, co-worker and partner, Scott Strain. They've done an excellent job of looking at some of the data. And so um, they put out a report uh, that's helping uh, us and helping Iowans uh, figure this out. And mostly, you know, I can help then legislators next uh, session and our team uh, look at data and uh, educate them about making good decisions for our budgets. And Ernie, there's always something, right? I mean, we've talked at the fall of last year when you were in Waterloo about the outlook for 2020, and very quickly that all changed because of COVID. And now you have this report, and a huge portion of Iowa is suffering because of the derecho. So, I mean, it's always fluid. And understanding that, what did this study find with regard to the economic impact of COVID-19 on Iowa's economy? Jeff, first, I'd like to thank TEF of, of Iowa for uh, supporting this and, and Walt and his team for assisting and providing data and other support. But this was produced independently. of They gave us a free reign to do this study, and I appreciate that. But overall, of course, um, the uh, coronavirus, the COVID-19, is having had some fairly, of course, dramatic impacts on the state of Iowa. And uh, our surveys also, as you say, Jeff, it's, if it's not one thing, it's another. And we just did a survey of Iowa just this week, and uh, a survey that includes Iowa. And we got the weather, of course, the uh, August 
hurricane, if you call it, I'd call it a hurricane without an eye. Mm-hmm. And that hit, of course, uh, near you, pretty heavy near your area, Jeff, and uh, yeah. hitting all of a lot of eyewitnesses. So, but the coronavirus had some fairly significant impacts and continue. Uh, for example, the unemployment rate right now in, in Iowa, the insured unemployment rate, that's those who draw unemployment insurance as a percent of the overall labor force has come down dramatically, but still remains very high compared to pre-coronavirus levels. When you do the analysis that you do, you're looking at data, you're mapping it against trends, you're doing comparisons. I mean, that's, that's the shorthand of what I foresee that you do. You obviously have some idea going in. Sometimes the data then supports that initial supposition. Sometimes it contradicts it. So with regard to this evidence that was marshaled, were there things that were remarkable in terms of standing out to you, either surprising you or things that, that really rose to the headline level? There was, Jeff, and the overall job losses, and that's uh, the number of individuals that lost their jobs in Iowa, and that's particularly the case in uh, a leisure and hospitality industry where the losses were very significant. We, we, we estimated the total direct losses plus the indirect, that'd be spillover industries, those outside of leisure and hospitality. The number was about 211,000, 212,000 jobs in the state of Iowa, and of course that's fairly significant. We're talking about a large portion of the, the uh, Iowa economy, and we're, we're estimating about 9 to 10% of GDP for that, that particular period of time. We, now, we looked at it from March 21st. That's when we first saw the impacts of the coronavirus appear in Iowa, up to the latest numbers we had were July the 4th. During that period of time, again, the job losses were about 211, 212,000 job losses. And when you look at the overall impacts, and uh, that was uh, fairly significant, much like the numbers that came out the U.S., although somewhat less than the U.S., about 9.1% of GDP, of state GDP. And I'm looking at a table that's in this survey. You know that it's bad, but it's not until TEF Iowa supports research that someone like you, Dr. Goss, does that it just jumps out. So again, nearly a quarter million people, 211,000 people, $1.7 billion worth of wages lost over this period of time. That seems pretty substantial when you're looking at economic impact, not to make light of it. It is substantial, Jeff. This is generated from a program we put the numbers in, the direct numbers that we get from uh, Department of Labor and other sources, and then the overall magnitude, the impact, that comes from Implan, it's a, a, a package we purchased, and it produces, estimates the total impact, sort of the meat at the top of the meat grinder and what comes out at the bottom. And what we got is what comes out at the bottom from the Implan out of Minnesota. What's going to be very significant in my judgment, going to hit Iowa later on, is going to be the taxpayer. In other words, state and local tax collections, very significant. Now, there is some mitigation of that. Some, To some degree, the CARES Act, that would be, of course, uh, phase one of the U.S. government's support for uh, state and local governments. There is some data and some financial in, uh, uh, support there from the federal government. Now, we'll have to wait and see, but even there, we're talking about as much as state and local taxes during this period of time alone, is about $352 million. 
Now that's again quite significant. That's going to have to appear in terms of higher property taxes, higher sales taxes, and higher income taxes to to support state and local government activities. Walt, when you're talking about assisting lawmakers in determining policy, your own experience as a longtime lawmaker, when you hear numbers like that, for somebody who wants a smaller government, less taxes generally, that starts throwing things into um, crisis mode, where if you want to maintain a certain level of services, something's got to give, because you can't just cut your way to a balanced budget at that point, right? You're exactly right. In fact, um, in this process, when we were looking at our second round that Dr. Goss did for us, the legislators were going back in June to actually figure out the the next year's budget. And I got calls from some of them because they knew that we were teaming up with Dr. Goss and and they were like, how are we going to decide this? How are we going to figure out how much revenue we're looking at? And so um, I think we actually did help them understand you've got to be cautious. And we just don't know how the CARES Act and the stimulus package is going to affect that for sure. It is. We just don't know for sure. And then with the whole t- the racial hurricane, we just don't know for sure what it's going to look like. Also, some of these impacts will not be felt until next April the 15th when individuals file their Iowa tax return. In other words, some of the legislators have said, well, we haven't seen that that downturn yet. And I'm, I would argue, yes, you haven't in some cases because you'll see it next April the 15th when individuals, instead of paying Iowa income taxes, will be getting a refund that you're not anticipating. So that we, we need to make sure that we, we look at that the long term, what happens, uh, I should say, the longer term. Walt Rogers is Deputy Director of TEF Iowa. Dr. Ernie Goss is a Creighton University professor and principal at Goss and Associates. We spoke via Zoom on August 20th. You can view the report online at tefiowa.org. And there's much more to the conversation. You can hear it all by listening to a podcast. Go to totallyiowa.com and click on radio programs. Still to come, banking and trade. And you'll hear about two brothers whose business takes you from grain to glass. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. Though many Iowans have been working from home lately, roughly 80% of Iowa's workforce has still been reporting for duty as normal. I'm Mike Ralston of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, inviting you to join me in thanking Iowa's manufacturers, healthcare workers, and first responders for their efforts during the pandemic. Working together, Iowa will be back soon, stronger than ever. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. A few items now from our inbox at radio at totallyiowa.com. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry will host a virtual panel discussion on the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement on Tuesday, September 1st, two months after the NAFTA replacement took effect. The program begins at 1.30 p.m. and is open to all Iowa businesses, manufacturers, and agriculture producers. Governor Kim Reynolds will begin the conversation 
followed by panelists who will discuss how important North American trade relationships are in Iowa. Canadian Consul General Ariel DeLoya, Mexican Deputy Consul Ricardo Sanchez, and Kyle Wells, Canada Desk Officer for the U.S. Department of Commerce, will be on the panel. To register, go to iowaabi.org events. We also take note of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's second quarter report. Officials with the Iowa Bankers Association note that banks in the state helped preserve more than three-quarters of a million jobs through some 60,000 Paycheck Protection Program loans during the pandemic this spring. Iowa consumers were in a savings mode during that same three-month period of the second quarter. Total deposits at Iowa banks were up by 13.4% from the same period the year before, now at $82.7 billion. The FDIC says banks' continuing deposit growth is due to various factors, including fiscal and monetary policy and economic uncertainty. Iowa chartered banks had $69.4 billion in active loans on the books as of June 30th, the end of the quarter. That's up 9.8% from the prior year. Coming up, a family-owned business that is still going after a decade. Emphasis on the word still. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa, Business Horizons, and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org. In this week's business profile, you'll meet Ryan Burchett. Many of you may remember him from a career as a TV meteorologist in Iowa. A decade ago, he and his brother Garrett started their own company that was far different from the work either had done before. We've been around for 10 years now, and so about 12 years ago, I was working in television in Davenport at uh, the NBC affiliate over here. My brother was living in Dallas, Texas. He used to design highways, and I was a, a TV meteorologist, and he was belly aching that how envious he was that we were living back here in Iowa to raise a family and he wanted to move back here, but he was only going to be able to do his job in a big city. And I caught wind about the state of Iowa was looking at changing the laws to try to uh, get craft distilling going as a tourist attraction, change some of the laws and make it a little more uh, friendly for folks getting started. And so I, I told my brother about this crazy idea. And uh, the more we talked about it, the, we laughed. And then we were like, well, actually, this could be something. Started writing a business plan and Next thing you know, banks were offering us money to do it, and we were too far along for our wives to talk us out of it. And so we were off and running, quitting perfectly good day jobs to go make booze for a living. But um, we've been at it for 10 years now, and uh, it's been exciting to be part of watching the industry grow in Iowa. And uh, just the evolution of what we've covered in 10 years has been pretty incredible. How does one start a business like yours? Because you need to be distinctive. You need to come up with your own recipes and all of that. How does it start? You know, for us, uh, we were very fortunate. We hooked up with a company out of southern Germany when we first started, and they were just getting introduced to the United States, selling their marketing, their equipment. And so they really worked very closely with us from a business planning standpoint, from a recipe development standpoint, 
it's an interesting industry right now because of everything that's going on in the consumer world as far as people's interest and uh, desire for local. And it is really a credit to the craft brewing boom. People now don't go looking for the town pub. They go looking for the town brewery or they go, you know, what's local when they come to a restaurant? Is there something local while I'm traveling through? I want to try these different flavors. And it's created a really adventurous consumer. It's created a place in the market that is really unique and different and fun to evolve with. And, you know, we started off 10 years ago, people were saying, you make your own what? And now, you know, we'll go to a IV store and talk to a liquor store manager. Okay, you're making whiskey. Well, how old is it? What's the grain bill? What's happening? You know, how did this come to be? And for us, everything has always been about being authentically tied to the place where we're from. And that is on the banks of the Mississippi River, right here off of I-80 in Eastern Iowa. And all of our grain comes from farmers within 25 miles of the distillery. We get it in the raw, we work with the farmers, we mill it here, we do everything from the raw grain to the final bottling. Because we built the business around tourism, we wanted to be authentic. And that authentic nature of what we do has just really paid more dividends than we would have ever dreamt because that's what people want. They want to know that it's a real deal, that it's from here, and that it's something that they can stand up and say, hey, I'm from Iowa. Try this great Iowa bourbon or try our Iowish cream liqueur, whatever it might be that they can share with their friends and share the story. And in our case, the story is real. And so that's important. What's the challenge for you right now? So you're 10 years in, There's a level of maturity to the business, as you noted. Mm -hmm. What's the greatest challenge that you face now? We spent a lot of time when we first started trying to, you know, grow the company coast to coast. And we found out that as the industry grew, you know, we used to be able to sell a lot of whiskey in New York City and Dallas, Texas and Washington, D.C. because there weren't other craft distilleries around. When we started, there were about 200 in the country. Now there's over 2,000. Those markets have dried up for us as, you know, people are buying the local stuff, which they should. So our challenge now has been, we're actually contracting markets, trying to focus on what's close to home, because if the distillery in Washington, D.C. is going to uh, own that market, then we need to own this one. And so we're really investing, spending time in Iowa and Illinois, in our backyard where our grain comes from, just to make sure people understand that we are an Iowa product, that we're from here, um, our grain is from here, and that helping them to hear our story, which a lot of folks still haven't across the state, and that's because we've just kind of been a little guy growing up, but we're getting there. And so uh, we're just trying to raise our visibility here in our own backyard so that, you know, there's room for everybody across the country as this industry continues to grow. Let me ask you finally, I just asked about the challenges. What are some of the most rewarding things? Because what I have found is that people who, whether they run a winery, whether they are involved in craft beer, or in this case, craft distilling, there's an enthusiasm for this that it's almost infectious. So what's the most gratifying thing to you at this point? You know, it's still cool to walk into a restaurant or bar and unexpectedly see your bottle behind the bar. That never gets old. That's still pretty cool. I just think that it has brought a keen awareness to how nimble you have to be as a small business to get through things like this. And I look back through the 10 years right now of this company, and we have grown and changed and evolved so much. And it has kept it so interesting to, you know, if you take a slice of this business's life over that 10 years and compare it to any other one, it's changed. We've opened a bar. We've, you know, we've expanded uh, what we make. We've made hand sanitizer during COVID. We, you know, we've responded to all these challenges 
and we're still standing here 10 years later. I think that's probably the thing that that right now I'm most aware of as far as just uh, the satisfaction that it delivers to me to look around at the great people that we have working here and the great things that they've been able to do to make sure that that we didn't just throw our hands up in the air and say, that's enough, we're, we're done. And and we're sitting in a good position despite all those challenges right now. And so that I'm really proud of that. And it, it's what keeps me coming back to work every day is, well, what's next? And I think everybody feels like, all right, 2020, what's next? <laughs> uh, bring it on because uh, we're going to figure it out. And again, going back to the challenges of this year, I just want to remind people that if you have a brewery, a distillery, a restaurant in your backyard that you just love. Go do them a favor and spend a couple bucks there today. Buy a gift card, save it for later. Pick up a bottle, pick up a six pack. Think local, think about where your dollars are going and how they, you know, we, we, we say that all the time, buy local and that kind of thing. But this is real life right now. I think there is going to be a crisis in the hospitality industry, no matter what happens over the next couple months, just because they're just simply not built for this. And so I would just encourage people, whether it's a bottle of Cody Road, we'd love it if you find one of those, but um, whoever is in your backyard that, that you want to make sure sees daylight on the other side of this, show them a little love here over the next few months because they're going to need it. Ryan Burchett, who along with his brother Garrett are owners of Mississippi River Distilling Company in LeClaire near the Quad Cities. We spoke via Zoom this past Monday, August 24. More online at mrdistilling.com. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. Next week, we'll preview September's Advanced Manufacturing Conference by talking with the event's keynote presenter. That's next week, at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. You'll also find podcasts of full interviews with many of the folks you hear on this program. They're listed as IBR Extras and IBR Business Profiles. We're also found on all the major podcast distributors, including iHeart, Apple, and Google. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at iowaabi.org.